Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and more time actually watching and playing what you want with the IGN Daily Update Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. What's going on, guys? Henry of Bro History. I have a quick announcement. We just started a YouTube channel. So if you like visual podcasts more, then go ahead and subscribe to the YouTube channel. The link is in the description below. So today I have Roy Casagranda on the show to explain the creation of the modern Middle East. Roy's a political scientist. He's also a professor of government at the at Austin Community College. He's also the faculty advisor of the Austin School, where he performs monthly lectures on the Middle East and philosophy. Roy's frequently on television commenting on Middle Eastern crises, and um, he was a great guest today, so I hope you enjoy the show. On today's show, I have uh, Roy Casagranda. He is a professor of government at Austin Community College, where he is a resident expert in Middle Eastern affairs. Roy is also the faculty advisor for the Austin School. They have these awesome lectures on YouTube. I encourage you all to check it out. And uh, Roy talks about, and he has lectures on philosophy, politics, history, uh, the greater Middle East. And uh, Roy, once again, thanks for being on the show. It's it's awesome to have someone with your knowledge and your expertise on the greater Middle East, especially during these uh, strange, strange times. And um, I guess since we are in such strange, strange times and with the unfortunate murder of Jamal Khashoggi, the Middle East is on people's radar again, um, which is obviously a good thing, in my opinion, that people are, are more aware of it. However, I thought it was kind of weird that it took the murder of a journalist to get people interested in Saudi Arabia and, and Saudi Arabian politics. Um, I just wanted to hear maybe your opinion on that before I guess we dive into to, to, to the context over the past 100 years. Okay, well, first, thanks for having me on the show. I, I really appreciate that. Um, the, the Khashoggi murder generating this much interest um, it, it is also surprising to me in one way. Um, you know, he wasn't a U.S. citizen. Uh, he was a legal resident. He was working for the Washington Post. Um, it, it's interesting to me that so many people have sort of rallied around him. But, I, and I don't know if this is even a real quote or not, but I've heard it so many times that even if it's not real, it, it might as well be. And it's the Stalin quote where uh, supposedly he said, uh, a million deaths is a statistic, one death is a tragedy. And, and you know, like, I, I think there, there's this, if you can put a name and a face on the death, then I, I think it makes it much more real. Um, so, you know, one of the other contradictions that, that's come up for me recently is I keep hearing people say, you know, Trump's the worst president ever. In fact, uh, there, there, there was a survey done of 
political scientists, and just for the record, I wasn't included in this, and it really makes me mad, um, but of who the, to rank order the presidents, and I, I think it was 170 political scientists, and Trump ended up being in worst place. And, and my, I find that really strange, considering, you know, under LBJ and Nixon, how many Vietnamese died, uh, needlessly, you know, under, under Bush, how many Iraqis died needlessly. Uh, you know, when I think of, you know, the economy tanking under Herbert Hoover and how he, he was slow to react and the Civil War breaking out and James Buchanan doesn't do anything, it seems to me that there, are, there have actually been much worse presidents. So I, I think um, what happens is people sort of lose perspective of the big picture and they become very focused on the on the small. And I think Trump hits people personally. I think the murder of Khashoggi, especially because it was so horrific, it kind of hit people personally. Whereas if you just throw out a stat, like millions of Yemenis might die of starvation, I, I think it's too abstract for people to grab hold of. Yeah, I agree. And I think there's this sanitization of, I'll say, the Bush presidency um, yes. with Trump. You know, it's... I hear a lot of people saying they missed the good old days of when, when Bush was president. However, I, I, I always ask them why, because that's when we really, not when we started it, but I mean, that's when our foreign entanglements in the Middle East really, really kicked up and, and really kind of launched into an uncontrollable level. So I'm always really confused by this, this, this whitewashing of the Bush presidency. It was just really weird to me. But I think, I think the really big issue, though, and I'm really happy to have you on to, to help explain this, is that people have an obtuse view on the greater Middle East. Um, they really are, whenever they're tuning in to Fox or, or CNN or whatever news channel they, they subscribe to, they're tuning in at, the, at season 10, episode 5 of a <laughs> TV show. That's very and true. They, they have no context of what the greater Middle East was, what happened in hundred years ago in the Middle East, um, how U.S. foreign policy, like the beginning of U.S. foreign policy. And, and I mean, I consider when I say U.S. foreign policy, I really mean Western foreign policy between the British and the United States um, really made things the way they were. Where would you start the story? I know you could start really anywhere, but I, 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 like where, where would be the best place to start off when, when explaining how the Middle East is the way it is in modern contemporary times? I think you're kind of forced to start with the Ottoman Empire. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll speed through the Ottoman Empire so we don't spend a lot of time on it, but I think it's good to kind of have that in the background. So uh, the Arab Empire, which was what was created with the rise of Islam, it didn't last very long. It lasted uh, really intact about a couple of centuries it was already losing the territory before that, but you know, it was essentially intact for about 200 years. And then it unraveled really fast over the next 200 years. So that within 400 years, it, it was, it existed only on paper. And what, as a result, what happened was uh, there was a tremendous amount of chaos because prior to the Arab empire, the, um, well, the West, which, you know, would be, if you really sat down and thought about it, it's probably everything West of the Indus river. Um, the West had two states, and that was really just about it. There was the Roman Empire, which people wrongly later on called the Byzantine Empire. There's no such thing. There was always just a Roman Empire. And there was the Persian Empire. So when the Arabs made their empire, they conquered the Persian Empire entirely. 
and they crippled the Roman Empire, taking about half of it. They made a bigger empire than either of the two, but it was also an incredibly fragile empire, and so it doesn't last. And so um, the Middle East ends up in a weird situation that it hadn't experienced prior, which was that there was no superpower in the Middle East. Um, if you, you know, if you start with the ancient Egyptian civilization and then, the, you know, the Mesopotamian civilizations like Babylon and Sumer and Uruk and Akkad, uh, at any given moment for thousands of years, one of the world's superpowers existed in the Middle East. And now there's this fractured, uh, smashed up state. Well, the Ottomans rise up in the middle of that and uh, they end up putting together a, a, a true world superpower. Um, they, they, they reconquer almost everything the Arabs controlled. They, they don't capture Persia and anything east of that. But they go all the way to Algeria. And, uh, and then they conquer territory that the Arabs had never conquered. Like they conquer uh, Constantinople, for example, and they make that their capital. And then they, they go all the way up into, cent, uh, into the Balkans, to the border of the Central Europe. In fact, they, they put Vienna under siege twice. And so this, this new state arises, that state's explicit stated goal was to create a new Roman Empire, a Muslim Roman Empire. And uh, its, its flag at one point was basically the Roman flag, which was an eagle with two heads. And, uh, and they, that's one of the reasons why they wanted Constantinople so badly, is they wanted that to be their capital, because that would confirm that they were this new Roman, this new Muslim Roman Empire. That state um, was technologically far superior to anything in Europe at the time. So what Europe was doing during the Ottoman period was, was at least in the beginning, was playing catch up. But by about 1800, the Ottoman Empire started to really fall behind the Europeans. It got, it got caught, be, um, there, a significant amount of corruption, uh, but there was also this, this really strong conservative element that didn't didn't want necessarily the Ottoman Empire to advance technologically. And so, strangely enough, uh, there's a rebellion that's led by an Albanian, of all people, uh, named Muhammad Ali, also known as Mehmet Ali. And uh, what the rebellion ends up doing is he, he represents the faction of the Ottomans who want to modernize. And uh, he conquers a huge chunk of the Ottoman Empire before they make a compromise. And the compromise deal is that he will rule Egypt as a semi-autonomous region inside the Ottoman Empire. And then that creates a dynasty. And that dynasty sets out to modernize Egypt. Um, they, they, don't, they don't quite pull it off, <laughs> um, but they, they try so hard that they actually conquer the Sudan as an effort to show that they too can do empire and be like the Europeans and create this, this massive European, or this European style Arab state. And uh, all of that takes place during the 19th century. And then, and then what starts to happen is uh, the Europeans are having wild successes themselves conquering the world. So by the time you're in the late 19th century, Europe owns almost all of Asia, almost all of Africa. It, it lost North and South America. You know, obviously the Brits still had Canada and there's still some Caribbean islands in Guyana. But most of South America and North America have separated off. But at the end of the day, they're still ruled by white people, right? The, 
the leadership in Brazil or the leadership in Peru or the leadership in the United States, they're still all white people. So the world had somehow gotten to the point where white people ruled over almost all of it. And in fact, um, before the outbreak of World War I, the Europeans had pretty much conquered everything except for Ethiopia, Persia, Japan, Thailand, the Ottoman Empire, and Liberia. And so one of the things that European states began to do is look at what they could do to the Ottoman Empire to finish it off. They, they had successfully already carved off pieces, um, but you know, now, now there was the big prize of finishing off the Ottoman Empire. The southern part of the Ottoman Empire uh, was Arab, ethnically. The northern part was Turkish, and then sort of in between uh, were the Kurds. And um, the, the Europeans began to think that those might be lines you could sort of divide and conquer the Ottoman Empire along. The Europeans were also thinking that they could, that some of Anatolia would be really strategic. For example, when Sykes-Picot is drafted, which is the you know, the plan the British and the French create to carve up the Ottoman Empire, um, they're, they're, they decide th to give a piece to Italy. They give up, right, the Anatolia region. They give up a piece to Greece, Izmir. They're going to give a chunk to Russia, which is the area around Constantinople. Um, and, you know, they're, they're looking at how they're going to, what they're going to take. France was going to get Iraq and Syria and Lebanon. Britain was going to get Palestine and Jordan. And then uh, what the Russians and the British were going to do is they're going to cut Iran in half, and the British were going to take the southern half, and the Russians were going to take northern half. And all of this was in an effort to basically make it so that the, the Ottoman Empire was no longer a world power, but also that the resources that it had hold of would now go to those European states. Um, fortunately or unfortunately, I don't know which it is, the Russians have a communist revolution, and uh, must be fortunately, and they decide that they don't want any part of this. So they don't move into the Constantinople region and they don't move into Persia. And what that does is that forces the British then uh, to replace Persia. The reason they wanted Persia so badly is they wanted to have an oil rich region. And so they switch over to Iraq and that's why we end up with the British having Iraq instead of the French. So that, that's one part of the story. The other part of the story was a realization by the British in the 19th century, that it would be critical and crucial for them to get a hold of a, their own oil resource. Um, up until the end of the 19th century, uh, there, were, there had been or, three oil companies, three major oil companies, Shell, uh, Royal Dutch, and um, British, I'm sorry, and uh, Standard Oil. And what had happened was the, the Dutch had actually purchased Shell. And so the British lost their oil company because the Dutch had 51% of the new oil company, which is called Royal Dutch Shell. And so the British decided that even though the Netherlands and the United States were their allies, it wasn't enough, that they needed to also have their own oil resource. And so they, they, they did something extraordinary. They, they began reading history with the goal of finding out if they could find a clue to where there might be large oil deposits. And they, as they were reading history, they realized that the Arabs were actually using uh, oil to, to fuel their lamps at night in their cities. And so they thought, okay, there's oil in the Middle East somewhere. We need to just go looking for it. And they, they literally just sent guys who stared at their feet as they walked. And um, they, they made a deal first with Persia. 
And the deal was an extraordinary deal. Uh, you got to wonder about these British negotiators. If you could just have 10 of them, you could rule the world. Uh, the deal they got was a 95% concession. A normal concession would be 50-50. <laughs> and uh, the Persians agreed to take five, and the British would take 95 if they found oil. And, uh, and then two years later, sure enough, they found oil in, oil in southern Iran. Um, shortly afterwards, the oil was discovered in northern Iraq, well, what is today northern Iraq. It was at the time, of course, part of the Ottoman Empire. It was the Mosul province of the Ottoman Empire. And so it, it's sort of two things that sort of drive us to create the borders that we have today are Britain's desire for oil and then the Ottoman Empire's ultimate disintegration. A 95 5%. A 95.5 um, oil concession, it sounds like they may have been high when they made that deal. And, and in fact, they almost certainly were. The rulers of Persia at the time were a group called the Gajars, and the Gajars were notoriously high. They, they loved their opium. And one of the reasons why the British um, probably pulled off the deal was the British had almost a monopoly on opium trade. And so they, they probably threatened to cut off the country's opium supply if they didn't give them a good deal. Go figure. The, the uh, first drug dealing empire. That's exactly right. The British Empire. First tobacco, then opium. <laughs> so it's really interesting. Americans, I don't think, would ever think of that to go read history books and uh, to, to find proof of oil. Um, so they, they found, they were reading history and they, went, they found that um, the Muslims, the Muslim cities or the Arab cities used to have their, their towns uh, lighted up by, by like streetlights, right? They had streetlights yeah. and they had, they had some uh, weapons as well, like grenades that they'd have in like glass, like oil glass that were basically hand grenades. Exactly. Yes. And then, and then the Romans also invented uh, the flamethrower, which was also uh, petroleum based. They would, um, put it on their ships, and that's how they destroyed two Arab fleets, in fact. So, yeah, so the British are going through and they're looking at the historical record, and they, they realize the, the Arabs and the Romans are both using um, hand grenades with oil and flamethrowers, and they're lighting up their streets at night, and they realize, okay, there's got to be oil in the Middle East, so they start looking. So World War One, the British try to make a move with Gallipoli, but they fail. I think they thought that was going to be a lot easier than they expected. So they have to come up with a different strategy after the failed invasion of Gallipoli because they end up in a stalemate almost like, you know, like on the Western front of World War One. So what do they do from there after they realize that the invasion of the Ottoman Empire is not going to be that easy? So, so at that point, they decide the, the best way to do this is to do the, the Arab-Turk split. Um, they're going to arm the Arab rebels, uh, the Arabs who no longer want to be part of the, the Ottoman Empire, and try and foment a rebellion. And then what the British are planning to do is launch from Egypt, go through the Sinai, and then into Palestine, and then charge up the coast, the Mediterranean coast of the Ottoman Empire, and at least carve off the Arab part of the Ottoman Empire. They, they've decided, you know... They're not going to be able to conquer Turkey outright, but they can at least do this kind of damage to it. Um, Lawrence of Arabia, of course, is one of the operatives who goes in. Uh, he goes into the, the kingdom of Hejaz, which, was, which is now today uh, Western Saudi Arabia. 
and uh, talks King Faisal into trusting the British, which of course is a terrible mistake. Um, and they, they do this rebellion. What's, what's shocking though, and the British hadn't prepared for this, was how effective the rebellion was. The, um, the Arabs beat the British to Jerusalem, which drove the British nuts because at some level the British are, they're still stuck in the Crusades. Their goal is to take Jerusalem because this is another crusade. And, um, and, then, and then the Arabs actually beat the British to Damascus. And Damascus had actually been the, the uh, second capital of the Arab empire. So it had an enormous symbolic value. And uh, with the you know, and the British had made a lot of promises to the Arabs. So when the British take Damascus, the British are kind of forced to accept that there is going to be this new Arab kingdom in the territory that Sykes Pico had given to France and Britain. And that Arab kingdom would include would have been you know the western uh, third or so of Saudi Arabia plus Palestine, Jordan, Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon, and and actually even including the un uh, Antioch region of Turkey. And so the British and the French began working in hand in hand to undermine this, this, um, this new kingdom. It was going to be ruled by Faisal I. Uh, he is played by Alec Guinness in the Lawrence Arabia movie, if you want to put a face to it. Obi-Wan Obi Kenobi. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but what's crazy is how much he looks like Faisal. Like, I've seen pictures of Faisal, and it really, Alec Guinness is just such an amazing actor. He looks like him. Um, so then uh, the British and the French do things like they set fires in Damascus and then cut off the water supply. And they pay tribal chiefs off to create uh, turmoil where there wasn't any, and they start rebellions. And then in um, 1920, the French invade, well, in 1919, the French invade Lebanon, and in 1920, they attack Syria. And there's only one battle. It's the Battle of Maisalun, but the Arabs are defeated. Um, the, the French went at the Arabs with tanks and uh, biplanes and the Arabs, uh, I, I don't even think, they might've had a couple of artillery pieces left over from fighting the Ottomans, but that was it. And they just couldn't, they couldn't resist the French invasion. So they quit. Um, Faisal essentially surrenders. And at that point, the British say to Faisal, why don't you become the king of Iraq? Um, the British invented Iraq. Iraq didn't exist. Um, it's not even clear where they got the name from. The, the two dominant hypotheses are that either they got the name from Uruk, the city, the ancient city-state, or they had gone into an uh, ancient Arabic dictionary and found the word for riverbank. And the British don't even know the answer, which is really remarkable. Um, in the process of uh, doing this, they, they also draw these arbitrary borders. Uh, Jordan... You know, the joke is that when Churchill was drawing the border between Saudi Arabia and Jordan, he sneezed and he caused a little Z shape. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's just that arbitrary. Like, why did he put the border like that? What was the point in that? Maybe he was uh, drunk. It, it could have been that he was drunk. Uh, it could, you know, it's pretty obvious that they wanted Jordan to touch Iraq so that because the Russians weren't going to take Iran, the British couldn't take their part of Iran, right? They needed to divide and conquer Iran. So once the British had decided they were getting Iraq, they obviously wanted Jordan to touch. But just the arbitrariness of where the borders went, um, it had no historical bearing. They had no cultural bearing. 
And of course, one of the tragedies in this is they, they abandoned the Kurds. I mean, they never made any a deal with the Kurds, but, but they, instead of put, creating a Kurdistan or giving the Kurds some kind of autonomy, they leave the Kurds divided up between four territories, between Syria, Iraq, Iran, and Turkey. And that's one of the reasons why we have the festering problem that we have today, where the Kurds aspire to statehood, but it's, you know, a really difficult uh, proposition because they're divided between these four powerful states. Uh, so anyway, so they, the British um, talk Faisal into becoming their, their king of Iraq, but the Iraqis aren't okay with this. The Iraqis didn't want to be part of the British Empire. They wanted their own state. And so they go into a state of uprising and the British actually begin bombing Baghdad from the air. Um, it is, you know, one of the first aerial bombardments of a city in human history. And uh, eventually the Iraqis submit. They go, okay, <laughs> stop blowing up our city. And uh, Faisal becomes king and the British get their territory. Um, the company that the British had founded in the 19th century in, the, in Iran that got the 95-5 concession, they had named it uh, the Anglo-Persian Oil Company. And then Iran is also going to go through a modernization period where it'll change its name from Persia to Iran. And so the British renamed their company the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company. Um, so the British kind of got their cake and were eating it too because they still had the oil coming from Iran even while they ended up with Iraq. Um, and so the French uh, really did get backstabbed because, you know, there, there was oil in Syria, but it was nothing compared to what was in Iraq. I know the British people were horrified during that air raid over Baghdad. I know that David Lloyd George said something that, Probably, probably can't be said on this podcast, like, <laughs> on a recorded podcast, but I know he said something and referring. He used the N-word. He used the, he used the N-word saying they have the right to, to bomb, fill in the blank. But yeah, it's really, it's really interesting. So after, so after World War I, as we go into the 1930s, or you know, where would be the next step or, or the next part of the story to explain um, shifting borders or just foreign influence? Okay, so um, when the kingdom, the Arab kingdom of, of Hejaz basically ends up briefly owning Syria, Iraq, Palestine, during that time period, interestingly enough, an uprising breaks out in Egypt. And actually the uprising was coordinated uh, between Egyptians, Irish, and Indians. And the, the reason was because Britain owned Ireland, India, and Egypt, and the three, the 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 three countries realized that if they're going to fulfill their goal of independence, they, they need to do this at the same time. And um, it's actually one of the reasons why India and Ireland basically have the same flag. It's just flipped over. Uh, it's because they had this revolutionary start where they were talking to each other. And in the case of Egypt, what happened in 1919 was the Egyptians took to the streets. They went to Medan Tahrir, which is where the Arab Spring took place. It, it literally means Independence Square and, uh, or Liberty, Liberty Square, I guess is a better translation. Freedom Square, even. Um, and they go into the, the square, which is in the center of Cairo. Like, it's like the axle in a wheel. Um, everything kind of goes there. So if you control that square, you control downtown Cairo. 
And the British, of course, don't want anything to do with this. And they actually rolled out with tanks and began mowing the people down. Um, the Egyptians responded with violence, and uh, there ended up being hundreds of casualties on both sides. You know, but they're literally rolling battles in the streets. And of course, Ireland is in the middle of its, its battle for independence. India had become quite violent as well. Um, but what happens, of course, in India is Gandhi decides it's better for India to remain a British colony rather than it is for it to get its independence through violence. And he goes on a hunger strike until the Indian Revolution basically is stopped. Uh, which is interesting because it means that India is going to be part of the British Empire for an extra quarter century because he decides that it was better to get its independence through peaceful means. Um, on the other hand, the British finally do make a compromise with both Ireland and Egypt. So Ireland and Egypt effectively win is probably too strong of a word, but they uh, essentially get their independence. Um, they They become... In the case of Ireland, they're, they're going to lose Northern Ireland to the British Empire. They're going to keep Northern Ireland. And in the case of Egypt, Egypt will effectively be independent, but there will still be British soldiers on the ground, and they're still going to control the Suez Canal. And, you know, it's, so it's not full independence by any means. Egypt is more of a vassal state. Um, one of the interesting things about that revolution, though, in 1919, was that it wasn't just a nationalist revolution. There, there was a nationalistic component to it, but rather it was, it was a little bit more complicated. What had happened was uh, a group of Christian Egyptians, the, the Christian minority in Egypt are the Copts. The Copts had decided that the best way for minorities in the Middle East to protect themselves was for there to be a really large single secular socialist state. And one of their inspirations, interesting, interestingly enough, was James Madison's Federalist Paper Number 10. And that's James Madison's argument, that if the United States ends up this super large state, there won't be any natural majorities, and therefore there won't be any inherent majority tyranny. Of course, he was wrong, right? White people totally tyrannize non-white people, and Protestants tyrannize non-Protestants. But, you know, like in principle, it makes, the argument makes some sense. And so uh, these, this Coptic group became sort of the leadership of the revolution. But, they, but the, the twist was that they wanted to create a socialist state. So it wasn't just that they wanted to have Egypt become independent from the British. It wasn't just that they wanted Egypt to be socialist, too. They also thought that the only way that they could move forward was to have the super state, the super large state. And the, the unifying factor would be that you were Arab. So they wanted everything from Morocco to Iraq to be brought into a single unified state. So basically in 1919, there's two um, pan-Arab movements happening simultaneously, one taking place in the Asian part of the Arab world, you know, what we would most people call uh, the Middle East, and then the other one taking place in Egypt. And uh, the, the result was that obviously both of them ultimately failed. One was completely disassembled in the case of the, um, the work that was done in Southwest Asia. And then in case of what was done in Egypt, it, it was left sort of lingering. It, it was unresolved. Um, and so then Egypt will have a third revolution in 1952. I, I didn't talk about it, but Egypt had a first revolution in uh, 1882. So 
1919, and the 1952. And the 1952 revolution, the pan-Arab secular socialists are the guys who prevailed. And they took over Egypt. Um, Gamal Abdel Nasser, of course, was the representation of that. And they, and they ruled Egypt until 1970. And their, and their goal was to take Egypt and, and make it the, the hub of this new, really large Arab state. And, and frankly, that scared the bejesus out of the United States. Um, we feared having all that oil underneath Arab control would, would mean that the Arabs would be in charge of the price of oil and not the United States. Because you have to remember, in the 1950s, it was you know, the Saudi Arabia of the world, interestingly enough, was actually the US. It wasn't Saudi Arabia yet. We knew Saudi Arabia was, was, would eventually replace us. Um, because we knew where the oil was. It's just at that point, we were the number one exporter. For, just for an example, we, were, we provided Japan with 80% of its petroleum. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And so the, the idea that the Arabs would unify meant that we wouldn't be able to divide them against each other. We wouldn't be able to manipulate one Arab state against the other Arab state. And they would be the ones setting the price of oil. Um, we, the U.S., had so much control over the oil markets, in fact, um, that the Texas Railroad Commission is what set the price of the barrel of oil globally uh, for about two decades. And so, strangely enough, the, the Texans would vote for these three people who would serve on the Texas Railroad Commission, and then the Texas Railroad Commission would, would determine that price. And we did not want to lose that. Yeah, absolutely. Which um, I guess leads me to the next thing I wanted to cover. I'm not sure if we should go with it. We should talk about Israel or Saudi Arabia. Um, maybe it makes sense to talk about Israel first, because I think most people, they start Israeli history in 1947, but they don't realize that there were immigrants going into Israel way before that. Um, can you speak a little bit to that and how, um, I guess, Israel before or Palestine before it actually became a state? Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I always hesitate here because I always want to try to figure out how far back I want to go. Yeah. Um, so, so I think it's worth pointing this out. And that is that uh, the Roman Empire was particularly brutal to the Jewish population living in Palestine. It's also worth pointing it out that the name of Palestine before the Romans named it Palestina was Pilistu. So th this name is really old name. It has, you know, it's not a political name. It, it is just this really old name. Um, it's also worth pointing out that the Jewish population in Palestine, although definitely a large portion of that population, was def was not all of that population. Palestine was multi-ethnic, multi-religious. There were many different traditions. They lived side by side, and and actually most of the history of the Middle East. Um, is a history of tolerance of diverse people living side by side and, and generally getting along. The Romans ran into trouble with the Jewish population because the Jewish population itself 
for whatever reason, just didn't like being ruled by the Romans. And so the, the way the Romans saw them was they were a bunch of stone-throwing rebels. And the Romans kept fighting them, fighting them, fighting them. And, they, and as they did, they kept escalating the violence, ultimately destroying the second temple of Solomon, and then displacing a large Jewish population, but not, not at once. It, it happened multiple times. Um, the last war between the Roman Empire and the Persian Empire um, the, the, Jew, the Jewish population joined the Persians against the Romans. And the, and the Persians did so well that they, they basically conquered all of Anatolia, Syria, uh, Palestine, and Egypt out of the Roman Empire. And uh, they set up an, a, a semi-autonomous uh, Jewish kingdom in Palestine. And, and then the Persians, for political reasons, ended up strangely enough surrendering. Um, and when they did, they, they let the Romans retake Palestine. The Romans wanted to punish the, the Jewish population for this again. And they, they, they slaughtered probably about 20,000 uh, Jews in Palestine. And prior to that, the Romans had been using the Temple Mount as a garbage dump. Um, they thought it would be a really wonderful thing to turn this totally sacred place into this, you know, refuse pile. The, the interesting thing about that, of course, was that the Roman Empire had already converted to Christianity. I'm not talking about the, you know, this, this started with the polytheist Romans, but even after the Romans had converted to Christianity, they continued to persecute that Jewish population. Um, even with all that I said, there was always a cadre of Jews living in Palestine. It, it, it never was fully ethnically cleansed, even when the Jews were kicked out people still remained there. Um, Jerusalem, however, this was, was evacuated of Jews. So when the Arabs conquered Palestine, one of the first things that the Arabs did was they went and found 80 Jewish families and brought them to Jerusalem because they believed that it was basically a sin that this city that's so holy to the Jews had no Jews in it. And so throughout the time period that the Arabs owned Palestine, the you know, there was, there was this continuous Jewish presence, especially in Jerusalem, but everywhere. And the Jews thrived under Arab rule. So that by the time we get to the 19th century, when, when the ideology Zionism is being created, you, it wasn't like the Jews had been missing out of Palestine for, for 1900 years. They had never been missing out of Palestine because there was always this presence there. And so one of the, one of the strange myths of the creation of Israel was it was the return of Jews to Palestine. And there's no such thing because there were already Jews there. It's like saying that Christopher Columbus discovered America. No, the Native Americans discovered America. Christopher Columbus was a conquistador. Um, so so that I, I feel like that's important background. What happened in the 19th century is that it was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back. There was the Dreyfus Affair in France. Um, the French arrested a Jewish German officer in, from the French army. He was from Alsace-Laurent, which was ethnically German. Um, and that's why he was a German in the French army, uh, right? Because the French owned a, a chunk of Germany. And uh, the reason they arrested him was they charged him with being a spy. 
it turns out that it was actually a Christian Frenchman who was the spy and not this poor Jewish German, and that they were basically scapegoating this Jewish German. And what that did was that made Jewish Europeans in general, but especially um, Jewish Germans, feel like there was no place for them in Europe, at least a group. And it was actually a relatively small group, just for the record. And so that's what spurs the creation of Zionism. Theodor Herzl, who's considered to be the father of Zionism, um, was an Austrian, and he just went, okay, we need to find a place to live that's not Europe. I said it's the straw that broke the camel's back, because when you consider a guy being sent to prison wrongfully um, compared to the, the centuries of just absolutely cruel treatment of the Jewish population, this is a really minor event. Um, the first pogrom was, of course, the first crusade. Before the European armies went to Palestine um, in Germany along the Rhine River, they went up and down the Rhine River attacking Jewish communities. Uh, and the estimate is that they killed about 9,000 Jews and raped tens of thousands of Jewish women. And then they went to the Middle East to go take um, Palestine from, from the Arabs. But the, the, the amazing thing is, is like they, I guess they thought they were getting Jesus's blessing by doing this. What it does is it triggers what we call the pogroms. And century after century, Europeans just brutalized the Jewish communities. The ultimate pogrom really is the Holocaust. It was, it was sort of the fulfillment of this deep-seated European hatred of Jews. Um, in the 19th century, the term that was being used to, to express your hatred of Jews was Judenhass, which is Jewish hatred. Um, you know, we've gotten, they, they decided they needed to get more sophisticated. We as a society have gotten more sophisticated. You know, we call our Department of War the Department of Defense, right? We, we use these funny little euphemisms. Today, today anti-Semitism, an anti-Semite isn't going to say they're an anti-Semite. What they're going to say is they're a white nationalist, right? Um, we've sort of thought we, we're clever at finding these ways around this but in the 19th century the the people who practiced Judenhaus decided they needed something that sounded more scientific something a little bit less uh emotional because hatred is such an emotional thing and they came up with anti-semitism um and that that's where we get that term so late 19th century is sort of the birth of anti-semitism and the birth of zionism anti-semitism in its birth wasn't necessarily its goal wasn't necessarily kill the jews it was really just to get the jews out of europe and and i think that's actually one of the ironies of zionism was it was the embrace of anti-semitism it's not the contradiction of anti-semitism it's it's the belief that yep yeah, you're right jews have no place here because you're never going to treat jews equally so let we should just leave um i i totally I can totally understand that feeling. You know what I mean? Like it, it doesn't, it doesn't seem alien to me at all. Um, but at the same time, it, I think it's, it, it's part of the struggle, right? That we have to say, no, I'm not going to give in to the racist. So it's a, it's a, it's a weird emotional place to be in where you feel like, okay, my minority will never be accepted. What do I have to do? Do I leave? Do I fight? Do I accept persecution? Um, so it's a really complicated situation. In the beginning, Herzl did not want to do Palestine. He, he was willing to do anywhere. 
there was talk of doing part of Australia. He was really interested in Uganda as a place to, to create an Israel. Um, at one point, somebody had suggested that they take New Mexico and Arizona and, and, and do an Israel. The, the, the Zionist community in Europe, however, because of its uh, sentimental feelings about, about Jerusalem, pretty quickly narrow, zeroed in on Palestine. And they began to move to Palestine um, with the hope of creating a large presence there. And it wasn't entirely clear how that would turn into a state, but the fig they figured uh, until you had people on the ground, you couldn't have a state. So uh, pretty early on, they began working on funding. Interestingly enough, it was a South African bank that provided a lot of the original funding for them to buy land. Um, by 1947, the Jewish Europeans, and I'm, I'm being really careful here because I, I want to remind everybody that there were already Jews living in Palestine, so that I'm differentiating them from the Jewish Palestinians. The Jewish Europeans owned 5% of Palestine, um, which is a significant chunk of land to own, but it, you know, it hardly makes it so that you, you would be justified in having a state created that, uh, you know, a state that's designed specifically for your ethnicity at the expense of all the other ethnicities there. In any case, um, that Jewish population moving to Palestine was welcomed. It was welcomed with open arms. The, the way a lot of the, the Jewish Palestinians, the Christian Palestinians, and the Muslim Palestinians saw this is it was a, they were just returning home, that they were, you know, long lost brothers and sisters who had been persecuted in Europe and, they should they should come home. They should go to Palestine. Interestingly enough, um, when the Ottoman Empire in in World War One uh, did the massacre against the Armenians, the Palestinians uh, welcomed the Armenians as well. So Palestine had become this place where people who were suffering from persecution could go to, and that that's how the Palestinians saw this. That these were you know these poor Jewish Europeans had suffered so much. Um. I think also in the mind of the Palestinians, there was no way that people who had suffered so much could turn around and inflict that kind of suffering, right? That they would, they would learn from their own suffering and know not to do it to somebody else. So they couldn't comprehend that there was actually, they were welcoming these people whose long-term goal it was to take their, their country away from them. Um, of course, there's the, the Balfour Declaration, but you know, who, who cares that some British guy decides that he's gonna gift a piece of land? I, I wanna gift uh, Ingerman land to Sweden, but I don't have the authority because I, I'm not Russian, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's not mine to give away. Um, and, and St. Petersburg would be, a, losing St. Petersburg would be terrible for the Russians. In any case, uh, during World War II, the British ended up in a weird situation. Because on the one hand, uh, they, they wanted as many people as they could get to fight for them because, you know, the, they were fighting in this uh, as the underdog, at least until the United States entered the war, um, against this incredible military might, the German military. And so what they did was they actually recruited Jewish Europeans living in Palestine. Um, and they created the Palestine Brigade. But they still needed more manpower, so what they did was they recruited the Arab Palestinians and used them as stevedores. So, that, so the Arab Palestinians wouldn't see combat, but the Jewish 
Europeans living in Palestine would. And the reason the, the British made this decision was they feared that if the Palestinians saw combat, that down the road the Palestinians would know how to fight, and if the Palestinians ever rose up against the British Empire, they would do an armed insurrection. Interestingly enough, though, before World War II even broke out, the Jewish colonists going to Palestine formed into terrorist organizations and, and began inflicting some pretty serious terrorist attacks. Um, the world wasn't accustomed to terrorist attacks. This is, this is really strange, like blowing up a bus full of civilians or attacking a hotel was a pretty alien thing. And so it was, it was, it was very good at generating interest, right? But it was also shocking at the same time. If there's a terror attack today, there's a, there's a, there's a pretty ho-hum response at some level. I mean, we're, we're aghast, but not in the way we would have been in the 1920s. And so the, the, the Jewish Zionist terrorism in Palestine was really upsetting the British Empire. So when World War II broke out, that was another reason why the, the British wanted to recruit, was they were hoping they'd get those guys into combat and then they would get them out of Palestine. And in fact, um, the British went to the various terrorist organizations like Irgun and Haganah, uh, the Stern Gang, and they, they made a deal with them. And they said, look, you, you lay off the terrorism at least until we finish this war against the Germans. And all of the Jewish terrorist organizations agreed to do this, except for Leahy, um, which Yitzhak Shamir was a member of. In fact, he had been deported from Palestine to Uganda during the war because he wouldn't stop fighting. And in fact, uh, members of Leahy had actually met uh, representatives of Adolf Eichmann in Lebanon because the Germans were interested in arming Leahy uh, to fight the British during World War II which just shows you how complicated the, the anti-Semitic feelings were in Germany, that they were willing to work with Jews in Palestine. You know, it's just mind-boggling. Um, in any case, the war ends, and the, the full extent to which the Holocaust happened becomes pretty apparent. Um, the United States sort of pretended it didn't know what was going on, but we know it knew, uh, you know, the... They, the surveillance, the pictures of Auschwitz, for example, the surveillance photographs that were taken by the United States Army Air Corps uh, clearly mark where everything was, including the ovens. So the, 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 the idea that the United States didn't really understand what was going on is just, it's, it's a lie. Um, and of course, the tragedy was that the United States did nothing during the Holocaust to stop the Holocaust other than win the war. Uh, we never bombed a railroad track leading to an extermination camp or uh, or a concentration camp. We never bombed a death camp. Uh, we made no real effort to intercede on on behalf of the people being uh, exterminated. Um, and the losses, there were probably about 5.1 to 5.4 million people. I mean, that's a hard number to wrap your mind around. Uh, and I, and I think the world just felt really guilty. Uh, Americans should have felt especially guilty because we literally turned ships around that were coming here filled with Jewish German refugees and sent them back to Europe, um, including Anne Frank's family, right? Like they didn't, some of those people didn't have to endure what they endured. 
Um, and the, the, the catastrophe of the Holocaust weighing heavy on everybody's mind, the UN was eager to create a, a, an Israel. Um, the, the tragedy of the creation of Israel is that it was done at the expense of the Palestinians. And so the, what the UN wanted to do was it wanted to create two states, a Palestinian state and, a, and an Israel, side by side in this tiny strip of land that Palestine is. And it gave the Palestinians about 45% and it gave the Israelis about 55%. And it actually divided Palestine up into, into H pieces. So, you know, in a jet airplane traveling across Israel from east to west takes about three minutes. Like we were talking a tiny strip of land here. And you're gonna cut it up into eight pieces. One of the pieces was going to be Jerusalem, which was going to be a neutral city that would be mostly administered by the UN. And then uh, roughly the area covering the West Bank would go Palestinian. The northwest corner would go Palestinian. Um, and then the south, uh, sorry, the central west area, so right around Gaza or Gaza Strip, would go Palestinian. And then the city of Yaffa, which is next to Tel Aviv, would, would remain Palestinian as well. So the Palestinians would get four, four chunks, um, a city and then three land areas. And then the Israelis would get the remaining three pieces, which would be the Northeast, the, the Central West, and then the South. Um, and the Palestinians rejected this. And, and the, here's the basis for the Palestinian rejection. They, they said that a single secular state should be created that there was no need to create a Jewish-only state because the Jews were welcome to be in the secular state and that they, they could do something like what the French had arranged in Lebanon, which was that every religion would have a post in the government and that every religion's freedom to practice its religion would be protected. And uh, so the Palestinians rejected the idea that there was going to be a Palestinian state for Jews, Muslims, and Christians, and then an Israeli state that would be just strictly for Jews. And so the Israelis used that as their, their excuse, basically, to try to conquer Palestine. And uh, in 1947, the Israelis declare their independence, and they fight a war. The Palestinians don't have a military. So the, the war they fight is against the Arab states in the area who join, who, who try to defend the Palestinians. Um, the Arab states were ruled by incompetent leaders. And uh, even though it's Egypt and Jordan and Lebanon and Iraq, all these countries sending soldiers, it's an epic folly. And um, the Israelis not only successfully defeat the Arabs and, and conquer Palestine, but they actually take more than their 55%. They end up taking um, 72%. So the Palestinians then are left with Gaza and the West Bank. At that point, the West Bank gets annexed by Jordan and the Gaza Strip gets annexed by Egypt. And so Palestine is literally erased from the earth. Um, the twist of all of this is the UN feels like it has to intercede on, on behalf of the Palestinians and it creates uh, an institution, uh, UNRWA, which its goal is to alleviate some of the suffering of the Palestinians while at the same time accepting that the Palestinians will forever be in a state of refugee status, that they will never have their home, they will never be permanently resettled somewhere um, and, and that is, that turned out to be right.
right, uh, here we are. It's uh, 70, what is it, 71 years later now, and or 70 years, 70 and a half years later, and the Palestinians uh, are, you know, there are some in the Gaza Strip. There's, there's about a million and a half Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, making it one of the most densely populated places on earth. There's about two and a half million Palestinians living in the West Bank. There's about another two million Palestinians with Israeli citizenship living in Israel. Um, you know, that's about six million. But then there's, a, there's another uh, six or so million Palestinians scattered between Jordan and Egypt and Lebanon and Syria. And they live in refugee camps. They don't live, I mean, the refugee camps aren't tents anymore. They, they've, the, the Palestinians have gone ahead and built brick buildings and, you know, they have plumbing and they have electricity going to them, but they are literally still refugees. And then there's probably about another 2 million Palestinians who live in, you know, Australia or England or Germany or Italy or the United States or Canada, kind of, or, or Argentina. They're just sort of scattered. Um, and, and so that's the tragedy of Palestine, that at the end of the day, you know, whether or not something needed to be done to create an Israeli state or not, it was done at the expense of the Palestinian people, and nobody has made ever made an attempt to fix the problem for the Palestinians. Like I think the Palestinians, if if it, if the logic fits that the, it was okay to kick the Palestinians out of of Palestine to make an Israel, then the logic is just as sound that we should kick everybody out of New York and put the Palestinians there to solve that problem, <laughs> which of course is absurd. <laughs> yeah, didn't wasn't Germany forced to pay reparations? to the Jews. However, yes. there is no way to identify who to pay the reparations to O2 were. So weren't they forced to pay the reparations to Israel in the form of billions of dollars? Yeah, it was $10 billion. $10 billion. Uh, yeah, and Germany protested to, to a slight degree. Like they were happy to pay the $10 billion. They believed that, and you gotta remember this is 70 years ago. So, you know, $10 billion 70 years ago, what is that? That's probably, uh, $200 billion in today dollars. Yeah. It's a huge sum of money, especially for post-World War II Germany to pay, right, where there was literally one intact city. Everything else was in complete rubble. Um, so Germany ends up paying this $10 billion. The, the Germans wanted to pay the, the descendants, the survivors, the relatives of the Holocaust, the $10 billion. And... Uh, the UN decided that no, they should pay Israel. And then so the twist of twists is the, the Germans actually went to Egypt and they said, hey, look, we're giving the Israelis $10 billion and we know they're gonna use this in a bad way. And so the way we see this is we're making more harm. We're not, we're, we're not fixing the harm we inflicted on the Jewish people. We're actually making harm for Arabs now. And so we, we want to make it up to you. And they asked Egypt what Egypt wanted. And Gamal Abdel Nasser was already in charge of Egypt at that point. And uh, no, I, that may not be true. It was right around the time when Nasser took over. So Farouk might have still been king. And in any, in any case, uh, the leadership of Egypt said that what they wanted was the Aswan High Dam so they could control the Nile, so they could prevent Cairo from being flooded every year. And uh, so the Germans went, okay, we can do that. We're engineers. And they went and they surveyed the soil and they figured out what the rock formations were. 
and they come up with this incredible design for this remarkable dam. It was, of course, at the, at the time, it was going to be the world's largest ever dam, and it remained the largest ever dam until 10 years ago. And it was going to create the world's largest ever man-made lake. I mean, just an engineering feat from hell. And the Egyptians were like, okay, where's... Uh, when, when are you going to get started? And the Germans go, we're bankrupt. <laughs> we don't have any money. We can't build this. Here are the plans. Good luck. And so uh, Egypt turned to Britain and the United States and said, will you fund it? And interestingly enough, both Britain and the United States agreed to fund it, which is actually what leads to the second Arab-Israeli war. Um, what, what happened was... so. Egypt sets out to create this um, pan-Arab secular state. That's their goal. And uh, part of this, of course, they, they want to build the Aswan Haidam, um, but part of this, they, re they need to militarize. They need to update their military. One of the things that happened in that first Arab-Israeli war is the Egyptians went into battle in Palestine with rifles that didn't shoot. And tanks, they, they had bought a bunch of surplus World War II American tanks. Uh, they were Stuarts, which are these little tankettes. They're really fast, but tiny, no armor and a thin gun on it. Uh, I think they were seven, 37 millimeter cannon, basically, which is, you know, just a, a super fancy rifle at that point. And, uh, you know, half of these tanks barely worked there were there were tanks that you know you could turn left but you couldn't turn right there were tanks where the turret didn't turn there were tanks where one of the none of the machine guns worked just the main armament there were tanks where only the machine guns worked the main armament didn't work and they go into battle with this stuff and they're like no wonder we lost i mean it's true the leadership was incompetent but our equipment didn't work so one of the things that egypt needs to do is modernize its military and uh nasser asks the British if he can buy British equipment. And the British are furious at Egypt because right, they want Egypt to stay within its sphere of influence. And the idea that Egypt is going to um, buy military equipment means that Egypt is gonna increasingly become less and less part of the British sphere of influence. So Britain says no, and Nasser makes a deal with the Czechs. And the equipment he's buying is all World War II stuff. But it, this time it's German stuff, and so the good stuff. The, the good stuff, <laughs> you know. And a lot of the a lot of the German factories were in uh, what is now the Czech Republic, and Czech engineering was fantastic. Uh, when Germany attacked the Soviet Union, something like twenty percent of all of Germany's tanks were actually Czech tanks, and they were you know really reliable, fast-moving little tanks. Um, so. Czechoslovakia is more than happy to do this, but this is post Iron Curtain. This is communist Czechoslovakia. And Britain screams, foul, you're working with our enemies. Um, and Britain says it's not going to fund the Swan High Dam. Nasser goes to the United States to ask if the US will continue to fund, because then he just needs to find somebody else to do the other half. And President Eisenhower says, no, if Britain's not funding it, we're not going to fund it either you can't build half a dam and so at that point Nasser needs an alternative source to fund it and what he comes up with is um, the Suez Canal if he nationalizes the Suez Canal which the British were treating as their own private property then what he can do is he can charge ships going through and then use that money then to build a Swan High Dam uh, so he, not he nationalizes the, 
the Suez Canal, um, Israel actually attacks. It, what it does is it enters the, the Sinai and it actually paradropped on the southern tip and then sent in ground forces across the border, hoping to get the Egyptian military to counter uh, cross the Suez Canal and then try to defend the Sinai. Nasser realizes it's a trap and he doesn't take the bait. And he keeps the Egyptian army west of the Suez Canal. And what the British and the French were planning to do was capture the Suez Canal with the Egyptian military in the Sinai. Um, they, they invade and they capture the Suez Canal, but the Egyptian military is on the wrong side. And at that point, Eisenhower decides that he's going to use this as an opportunity to punk the British and the French, and he um, he goes to the UN and he declares that what the British and the French have done is is wrong, and that they must withdraw immediately. And Eisenhower gets the votes to uh, send in a UN force, and the British and the French are are forced to withdraw from the Sinai as as well as the Israelis. Um, and it, the British and the French feel humiliated and betrayed by the United States at that point. Um, but, you know, we're the new empire, so we needed to replace Uncle France and, and, and Dad. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a new sheriff in town. So I think people are confused about the Cold War. Eisenhower, the Eisenhower Doctrine was, was more aimed at getting the French and the British out of the Middle East, right? Absolutely. So you, you had actually started to... You said, I don't know whether to ask about U.S. oil interests or, or Israel-Palestine first. So I'm going to do this question and that one also. So uh, Battle of the Bulge. <laughs> you knew I was going to go there. Yeah, I knew you were. <laughs> and, and for and my audience knows I've used that talking point before in other episodes. So they'll be <laughs> oh, you have? Those. Okay, they won't go into too much detail. I'll, I'll, just, I'll just summarize it. So what hap in a nutshell, what happens is the Germans think they can, they can get the United States and the British to not surrender. The Germans are planning to surrender the British and the United States, but they, they can get the British and the, and the United States to agree to, to allow Germany to continue to function as a state. And the way that they're planned for creating this really bizarre scenario is they're going to take all their, top, their major equipment off the Eastern Front, turn it around, punch a hole through Belgium, go to the English Channel, cutting the British and American forces in two, trap the British and American forces in the Netherlands, and then wipe them out, and then sue for peace. And they bring all these SS divisions and all these top German uh, Wehrmacht divisions, they put them you know, on the border of Belgium, and they punch a hole when they've got these Panthers and these Tiger Twos, and they're just cutting the American forces in Belgium to pieces. Only the 82nd Airborne survives. And the, the Germans should have won. I mean, the Battle of the Bulge should have ended up being a catastrophic disaster. It's just that the Germans ran out of oil. And that left such an impression on the United States that FDR jumps on an airplane, flies to Egypt, and meets with the King of Saudi Arabia in the Suez Canal in January of 1945, the very next month. And he, he basically tells the King of Saudi Arabia, I almost don't care what happens next. It's just the United States can never be that country that runs out of oil. <laughs> we want somebody else to be that guy. And so um, FDR basically 
creates the relationship that we have with Saudi Arabia today, which is it's a love-hate relationship, but it's it's mostly love and it's it's a marriage. Um, there's no way we're ever going to break this alliance with Saudi Arabia on purpose, and they have no intention of ever breaking ours. Sometimes we get mad at them, sometimes they get mad at us, but at the end of the day, we still sleep together. Um, great, because that's the most important thing. You can argue all you want, but you still need to have sex in America. <laughs> and never, that's us. We never go to sleep mad. Never go to sleep mad, right. <laughs> the best advice ever. Um, and so uh, Truman, of course, inherits the United States from, from Roosevelt. And the Truman Doctrine is fight communism at all costs everywhere it is. That at the end of the day, communism is the biggest threat to humanity. And he, he is actually going to do something um, which will flip the world upside down, but I don't think he knows it. So Syria had just gotten its independence. Well, Syria was essentially independent during World War II. The British invaded Lebanon and Syria and took it from the French during World War II. And then uh, because the British right, didn't, knew they wouldn't be able to simply pull off being the new colonial power. Uh, they effectively let Syria rule itself. So when World War II ends, the French come back, and uh, but, but it's, the, it's done. It's a done deal. Syria's going to get its independence. And if I remember correctly, they get their independence officially in 1946. Brand new democracy, the sky's the limit, Syria is a rich country with uh, really well-educated people. Year three of its brand new democracy, the CIA, under the direction of a guy named Co Miles Copeland, overthrows the Syrian democracy, the fledgling Syrian democracy. This is, the, the CIA is also fledgling, right? This is one of its first operations. And the result is to plunge Syria into chaos. Um, it, it basically takes Syria nine years to recover from the, the chaos of that coup. I, I don't remember the exact number of leaders that, that uh, Syria had in that nine years, but it's something like 11. You know, it was like, it temporarily turned Syria into Italy. And Italy functions in anarchy, but most countries can't do that. Um, the, the consequences, though, is it sets a tone for what the United States is going to do, right? We're going to overthrow the Iranian democracy in 53. We're going to assassinate the, the Iraqi president in 63. We're going to overthrow the Guatemalan democracy in 54. We overthrow the Chilean democracy in 73. Like, the, the sky is the limit. The CIA is our assassination wing, and it's just ripping through democracy after democracy. Um, but, it, but then Eisenhower replaces Truman. And the Eisenhower Doctrine is the Truman Doctrine, but only tertiarily. Is that a word? Um, I think so. It should be if it's yeah, not, because there's yeah. secondarily. <laughs> so uh, Eisenhower thinks there's two priorities that are even more important than uh, fighting communism. And one of those, the, the second one, the second most important of them, is fighting pan-Arab secular socialism. That this goal that Egypt has of creating a single state that goes from Morocco to Iraq, that's secular and socialist, is just not acceptable. Um, and 
his goal is to use any means necessary to fight this, including funding fundamentalists, including backing up tyrannies, including supporting monarchies, anything that he can do to support this or to fight this. Um, the other thing that, the, that Eisenhower wants is he wants to destroy the British and French empires. He wants to replace them with the United States. And that's one of the things that the 1956 war allows, is he sort of turns the Suez Canal War into a Waterloo and um, humiliates France and Great Britain. And they didn't see it coming. They, they were clueless. They were thinking uh, the United States and that there was like a triumvirate of these three Western states and they were going to work together and, you know, France would keep its empire and in secret. The United States was even helping foment a revolution in Algeria as well during this time period. Like we just, we wanted to disassemble the French empire and the British empire. And uh, it's so bad. In fact, that in 1958, Iraq is having a revolution to throw out Faisal III, Alec Guinness's grandson, and uh, Faisal I's grandson. And we actually began funding the communists. We were funding the same exact guys that the Soviet Union was funding because we were worried that the socialists would win the revolution, and we just wanted to make sure that didn't happen. Um, you know, we'll send money, covert money, to the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, by the way, in Iraq, the communists, they didn't win. The, so, the socialists captured parliament, but the communists captured the executive branch. And a guy named Gossam ends up becoming uh, basically the guy in charge of Iraq. But the CIA goes in and assassinates him later. So the guy that we helped get into power, we then take him out when it's convenient for us. Yeah, it sounds like we started a really bad habit, unfortunately. I, I think Truman set a terrible a terrible precedent and we've never recovered. Uh, I mean, the, the, our whole U.S.-Iran relationship is stuck in 1953 when we overthrew their democracy. And, you know, you know here we are uh, 65 years later. It's like, how, when will this wound ever heal? Now, admittedly, one of the reasons the wound won't heal is the United States won't let it. Um, but 65 years Later, you would think that we could have done something to fix this. Anyway. Yeah. I mean, at this point, I'm, I, I've, I don't want to say I've come to the conclusion, but in my opinion, we, we, what we don't, the U.S. does not want to mend relations with Iran, essentially because it's a pretext to increase military budgets and to spend money on weapons. I mean, I, that's really the the controversial conclusion that I've really come up with when, when looking at Iran, just based off the entire history, um, especially since the nuclear deal was such a big, so controversial. But I think on that note, we should end it because I know if we get into more topics, it's another <laughs> hour and a half. Um, we definitely covered part one, I guess, of, of U.S. foreign policy. Yeah. In, in the Middle East, uh, I mean, we really we really covered a lot of ground, especially going back all the way to to Rome. But this is this has <laughs> been really really this has been really really great. I, I really appreciate you coming on. This is definitely going to benefit a lot of people, and I hope everyone who's watching, listening to this, shares this with a friend because this podcast is really aimed to give people additional context. So when they look at the Middle East, when they hear a news story, when they hear a bunch, uh, when they look on the TV and they see a bunch of uh, 
pissed off Arab people. Uh, just to have a little bit more context when when, when watching it. Um, any any closing things that you want to, you want to say? Any any anything you want to plug? You have a book, right? I, I do have a book. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's a historical fiction set 2,500 years ago. It's called The Blood Throne of Caria. It's about uh, Artemisia I of Caria. She was uh, an admiral, uh, a queen who ruled without a king, and she was also a governor in the Persian Empire. Really? Yeah. And I, the, her story was really compelling to me. I never intended to write her story, uh, but I just couldn't get her story out of my mind. Like Just the thought that somebody could have pulled all that off 25 centuries ago is just mind-boggling. You know, as a woman, pull all that off 25 centuries ago. Where can people find it? So you can you can find it on Amazon. Um, uh, if you live in, in Austin, you can find it at bookstores. Actually, it's also in Albuquerque and L.A. Uh, and then if you want to, you can go to my website, bloodthronecaria.com. Got it. Yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll post a link, uh, the Amazon link into the description. Um, Thanks again for doing this. this. This was awesome. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.